With retail media, you have the ability to be very focused. They can track not only what you saw and were exposed to, but what you actually bought. Welcome to the Be Epic Podcast, brought to you by the Sam M. Walton College of Business at the University of Arkansas. I'm your host, Brent Williams. Together, we'll explore the dynamic landscape of business and uncover the strategies, insights, and stories that drive business today. Today, I have with me three of my Walton College colleagues. I have Dr. Rod Thomas, uh, who is an Associate Professor of Supply Chain Management. I have Dr. Molly Rapert, uh, who is Associate Professor of Marketing. Uh, And I have Mr. Andy Murray, uh, who is the Executive Director and Founder of the Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative at the Walton College, amongst some other things. Uh, But well, welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. Thank you, Brett. We're happy to be here. We're excited. Well, today we're highlighting a piece of what I would call industry-focused research around retail media networks that that the four of us have been working on for over a year now. Uh, We've published a white paper last September that we called Realizing the Promise of Retail Media Networks. Uh, We have another one recently published. and, uh, and then we've got some, un- some academic work that's underway. So I want to get to kind of that whole process of industry-focused research, but maybe let's just start with the research itself. For many listening, might not know what we mean by a retail media network, so we probably should start there. Andy, I'm going to start mm-hmm. with you. And I, I'm going to tell the audience here, while I introduced you as the Executive Director of the Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative, You've had quite an industry career um, and, um, you know, have sort of a lot of your career bridged this gap a little bit between practice and, and academics. But So maybe I'll start with you. Uh, tell me what a retail media network actually is. Uh, well, if I could only define it uh, with such, you know, clarity that everybody could understand, it'd be amazing. Um, but, you know, that's an interesting question. I, I was at the beginnings of the shopper marketing world and one of the first uh, questions was, what is it? And it took forever uh, to define it, which I think is one of the challenges we have with retail media networks. I think you, when you look at that question, you almost have to define it from the set of kind of common core elements and then let it build out from there because the edges are a bit murky in terms of where's that line and how you define it. When we did the research, we probably got 30 different responses to you know what is a retail media network. But I do think there's some common elements that we find that's really important that guided this research. Uh, we were looking primarily at Omnichannel. I uh, was looking at uh, this, these advertise as an advertising platform that had first-party data, closed-loop reporting, were really at the two core elements, and this ability to measure and be able to get that uh, kind of clarity of you know what's really happening in the in the transactional space of advertising. Yeah, we're really talking about a advertising platform if you will, that the retailer is, you know, providing for itself and for its partners. And I, I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. yeah. When Andy said first party data, what do we mean by that? Um, first party data refers to our shopping history, right? Traditional media, we pull out an advertisement or we look globally, do we get a sales lift or not? With retail media, you have the ability to be very focused. They can track not only what you saw and were exposed to, but what you actually bought. 
And that what you actually bought, that's the closed loop piece that we were talking about. So it is a micro-targeted, or it gives you the ability to be very micro-targeted with your marketing efforts. You know exactly if Molly was exposed to an ad last night, whether or not she bought. If Andy was exposed to an ad, whether or not he bought. And that level of feedback gives you the ability to target consumers more effectively, and it also lets you kind of constantly experiment with the ads you're giving everybody. So to me, it's the ultimate marketing tool, but I'm not the marketing expert. Molly, jump in. Well, I was going to jump to Molly yeah. there. You know, Molly, you are the ex marketing expert, you and Andy. Uh, and you've, not only that, you've really engaged industry throughout your whole career in your classroom, uh, which I, I think is something that you've done so, so well. Uh, but it, as you've gone through this process of the research on retail media networks, I, I just wonder, what are a couple of things that stood out to you? I'll say with respect to the definition, what was really interesting to me from the viewpoint of having talked to industry experts a year ago and then now this past year was how the specificity changed. I felt like last year in our conversations, people just referred to retail media networks, but no one was defining it in the same way as Andy said, 30 disparate um, definitions, most of which had descriptors like the wild, wild west attached to it. And now I feel like there has been some convergence of what it is, and they've moved past that into, okay, exactly what do we expect from it? And um, it's happened with a great deal of velocity. Yeah. There. Well, you know, maybe I should ask this. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's really a fundamental shift in the way uh, advertisers can go to market and connect with customers. And uh, it's new. I mean, Amazon, uh, uh, when they published in 2019, a $32 billion uh, take in ad spend, which hadn't really been pulled out on the P&L and, and reported that way. A lot of jaws dropped collectively in CMO land around the world of retailers saying, that's a big, something's happened. And so if you look at what makes it a big deal, part of it is the money that's been moving into this space at the velocity it's been moving uh, could be well over $100 billion globally uh, in 2026. So that's a lot of money moving into this space. And when you get that kind of money moving, something's happening, right? I mean, it, and to pay attention of what is that thing that's happening is really the question we've been asked to kind of look at or been tasked to look at and been excited to try to explore up just what is happening that's allowing this to, to emerge so quickly. And I'll add to that, that if we look at the broader context of what's happened over the course of our collective careers, um, it's considered the third wave. And I think Andrew Lipsman with Insider Intelligence really put it well when he said that first wave took 14 years to get from $1 billion to $30 billion when we're looking at search. We go to the second wave of social that took 11 years to go from 1 billion to 30 billion. They've made this move in five years mm. to get to that. So the traction, the velocity, the way it's entrenched along with everything else Andy said is really what's keeping it on our horizon. The, the other reason I'll say it's a big deal, it gives you that rare triple win for consumers. If retail media is operating properly, I'm not getting ads for uh, women's coats, right? I'm not getting ads for things that are not appropriate for my age or my tastes. 
It is a customized solution for me. Mm. It, it doesn't waste my time for suppliers, for the brands. It gives them an opportunity to market their goods and um, products and services in a way that is so targeted and so focused, it should increase their sales volume. For the retailers, it's an acromodal weapon extreme. And the key is not only is it big dollars, like Andy said, it is higher margin, much higher. The margins on retail media are much higher than typical product sales. And that's why you're seeing retailers so um, aggressively pursuing this. Right? It, and it's flooding a lot of the omni channel. Omni channel is expensive from a supply chain perspective. Home delivery is really expensive from a supply chain perspective. Retail media offsets the lower margins with that supplemental margin. And I think the other thing that's important why we've wanted to study this is that this is not getting born like a TikTok or a Meta, where you know it's a media organization dealing with a, a new channel that's emerging, even though those are huge channels. This is this is being born inside of an existing commercial relationship that just upends everything in terms of now the retailer is also uh, a, a seller, you know, and, and the client and who's the client, who's the buyer roles have shifted. Mm-hmm. And you put that kind of organizational change into a pretty established ecosystem of the way things work, it, it can cause quite a bit of disruption inside the organizational frameworks. We, we organize our reserves around uh, the promise and, you know, gaps to the promise and ways to move forward. And, and I want to get there in just a moment. But but maybe maybe we'll back out for just a second and just talk about this research process and maybe why we did this, right? You know, uh, so this is absolutely an emerging phenomenon. Uh, and we decided as a group that this needed an academic look, but it also needed it pretty quick. Right. You know, we we didn't feel like we had a lot of time to get the thought out into market. And you think about the Walton College, when I think about our vision, you know, I really just break it down into two core components. One is transforming lives. And we tend to think about that, of course, as our students uh, every day uh, when they're on our campus and and throughout the other aspects of their lives. But the but thought leadership is also a core component of who we are. And this was a real opportunity, it seemed, to provide thought leadership in an area that was emerging. Um, and we did that through qualitative research methods. And Rod, you are, you know, the the expert on our team at least in in these methods. So talk a little bit about how we went about this research. We went into our laboratory, right? A chemist goes into a lab and starts mixing chemicals. Our lab is industry professionals and their corporate settings and what they're doing. Um, and it's really, it's, it's awesome to be involved with a brand new industry, cutting edge industry. And we're on the forefront of that where we got to talk to dozens of industry leading experts and get their insights on this. Um, so qualitative research in general is we go talk to people, not structured. Right. We will have an interview guide and some standard questions, but we love to take it wherever it wants to go, where whatever they need to talk about. And then we come back, we go through, we call it coding. So essentially we look for patterns. We look for common themes and what they're telling us. And we try to identify those and then try to look at how those things link together. And overall, what we're trying to do is describe it. A new phenomenon would be the academic term for it, but for industry, 
let's get our arms around what the heck are we talking about with retail media, right? Just defining that is difficult. Um, describing what's involved with that. And then we went to the next stage of, okay, how do we make it better? And we're pinging all kinds of people from different backgrounds. It wasn't just suppliers. It wasn't just retailers. It wasn't just third-party providers. It was all those things and those different perspectives from big companies, small companies, whatnot. And when you talk to enough people, you start to get redundancy. And that's kind of where we said, okay, we got enough to publish. Um, let's get those insights out there for everybody to learn from. But a big part of what we were doing up front is describing it, defining it, and differentiating it. H how can how can these retail media networks be most successful? How can they differentiate themselves from the competition? Because although there's over 600 of these right now, they're not all going to survive. Right? We're hearing more and more from our suppliers. There's going we're going to count on our hands how many of these are really going to thrive. Five years from now. I, th I think from an academic side of this, uh, th that was a new process for me, Brett. Uh, and I probably struggled the most coming from industry because um, I'm like, well, I've got all these specific questions I'd love to ask. And, and Rod and Molly, especially last year, the first time through, were like, no, that's not how we do it. Uh, we can't go that route. I said, yeah, but I really want to know about this or that. And it's like, you can't do that. You know, that's not the academic approach. And letting this breathe and, and letting the insights unfold from, from some very macro questions that had no leading uh, biases in them. It was just completely, you know, uh, macro. I thought, boy, that we're not going to get much out of this. Let's get to the specifics. And I was totally wrong. I mean, it really was fresh to see that. And I see a lot of industry research published, but the value of this coming from an academic model and approach really makes it a bit different. And it was something that I had to learn how to adapt to. Uh, and now I, I totally appreciate the value. Yeah. I mean, it was so much fun uh, to have you. Um, and I might call you a quasi-academic now. I don't know. I like On the team. And so Molly, from your standpoint, you know, you've worked on many academic research teams. You've worked with, with industry professionals your whole career, but we got a chance to kind of blend that on this team. Right. And I think that that is to be honest, the beauty of Walton, it's what attracted me here in the first place. And I think that this is a great example of it, but it's certainly not the only example. I think it pervades everything we do from having the customer-centric leadership initiative to business integrity centers to um, I have an advisory board for my class that picks the articles that my students read. I run the retail advisory board that is industry executives from around the world. I think this is who Walton is. It's This is a natural extension of that. And so then to be put in a setting that is part of our daily responsibility of doing research, but carrying that same philosophy into that setting, it's my favorite research, hands down, where we're looking at exactly what is happening in industry, putting our frameworks and our understanding with that. And I don't think it gets any better at, than that in academia, but I also don't think it gets better than how Walton is positioned to bring these entities together in the um, proximity that we can. You know, Molly, I completely agree. I, I tend to say that this industry engagement that the Walton College has the ability to do and is uh, fortunate enough to have is our superpower, uh, maybe for a lack of a better way of saying it. And, you know, in this community and in this state, 
Um, I feel like it's, it's, it's not only that industry's here, it's that they want to engage. Uh, and so they want to engage with students. Our students want to engage with them. Our faculty want to engage with them. Uh, industry wants to engage in thought leadership. Uh, it's, it's just a really unique thing uh, about uh, the Walton College of Business, Northwest Arkansas and Arkansas more broadly. I think it's more unique than maybe the audience would even realize because it's so common sense. I mean, why wouldn't you have academics working with people in industry? But the reality is it doesn't happen and certainly doesn't happen to the extent that it happens at this table and in our college. I'd like to also add, I think the diversity of the research team was really important and didn't probably manifest itself until this round we had where, you know, what, what's a supply chain logistics guy going to be add to a very complicated retail media technical thing. But then as we got into it and started asking questions, one of the executives we interviewed said they only hire into retail media network roles, supply chain logistics grads. And that's a point where I thought Rob was going to like just come out of this chair. <laughs> excitement. I think it was, I told you so. <laughs> I think so too. But then he said, you know, retail media is a supply chain problem. Uh, and I had never thought of it that way before, but, you know, Rod saw it right away. Uh, and I think you've been saying it's a supply chain problem for the last couple of years, but I don't think that would have come up without that academic diversity that trying to bring this team together to explore this problem. We, we, we've got to tell the audience a, a little story here about trust, I think. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. So this, this is a, 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 an undercover look uh, at, at their research team. Uh, Andy or Rod? Um, let me start with Andy. Yeah. <laughs> what did you learn about trust? Well, um, this is such an uh, interesting story. Um, I can't believe you're asking me this, but the first <laughs> round through, uh, as we we're doing the coding, we started talking through themes, and and I can't remember if it was Molly or Stephanie or I don't think it was Rod. It might have been Rod. I uh, said, you know, what we're dealing with here is uh, a theme around trust, and I like trust. I don't hear that word in the professional circles I run in and these other things that sounds soft, that sounds ambiguous. And, you know, we can't put that in the research. And uh, I couldn't have been more wrong as I started to explore that. And we had some pretty heated conversations around trust and, you know, does it really manifest as a construct? And over time, as we kept working through it, and then I got my hands on Stephen Covey's book, The Speed of Trust, and it broke down all the things that we were talking about uh, in just different language. And so, I, it was quite an epiphany, and boy, did we have some vigorous conversation on that. And I, I'll be the first to say I was wrong. Well, yeah, I will say uh, that's probably the only place that you were potentially long during <laughs> this. But uh, it was really just such a, a fun part of this story that we picked at each other at throughout it. But you know, but but it was this you know this blend of somewhat really rooted in practice with with. Uh, with researchers that are really rooted in academics and that like being able to work through those issues really made this work much more. And my memory is, I think, I don't, I honestly don't remember if it was Stephanie or myself that just flippantly said it, but it was Rod that went and pulled the trust literature. I remember this and started bringing out the dimensionality of it and showing up with an academic article on it or oh, saying, I, I really think you need to think about this. And the next thing I know, I'm seeing Andy on LinkedIn talking about a trust tax. <laughs> uh, this, this is the beauty of it. I, I'm I'm following copyright infringement. <laughs> <laughs> the power of qualitative research 
is a, it is interpretive. And we do need to have those conversations. We need to make sure those themes that we're talking about are really there. And even going back to some of, you know, later on, we were asking some of our people we were um, interviewing, are there trust issues? Absolutely, it came up, right? We didn't beg the question. Right. We didn't start out with, we're going to make this about trust. No. So go back to when you were talking about academic research, we're supposed to be unbiased. We're supposed to be neutral. We are scientists. We don't go into it with an agenda like a business person or even a journalist would. Um, and that's powerful. And the trust thing came up. Nobody explicitly set it up front, but that's okay. right? They were describing, they're talking all around it. Um, there was a lot of mistrust up front because it was unknown. People didn't know what retail media was. A lot of these suppliers were just like, where is this going to end? How much is it going to cost me? How is this going to impact my business? They were fearful. And then there was this element of, is my investment going to pay off or not? So there was a credibility dimension of trust. There's also this benevolence dimension of trust of, are they just, you know, using this as another way to tax me or generate money? Um, so they were talking all around it and we, we finally got them on board and people started explicitly saying that as well. And then we could dive into it very directly. Uh, but it was fun. Um, it took me back to my industry roots as well. And Andy and I like to give each other a hard time. So it was a great context to do that. Yeah. And I, I think I got stuck on the benevolent side of trust and not really understanding lack of capability mm -hmm. as everything was new is a trust issue because you don't you can't trust if this decision's gonna work, right? And I never really looked at it that way. So thank you, Rod, for disabusing me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Rod, let me ask you this question. Oftentimes uh research gets, you know, said it's either industry focused. You know, kind of white paper research or it's academic. Um, it it's truly possible for research to to be disseminated. Um, and and so how do you do? It's not easy. It's difficult to do, but I think we've done it here because it is such a new industry, because it's such a new phenomenon. We can go to the academic literature and go, hey. Industry's doing this. We need to get out in front of this. Let's define it, describe it, talk about the theoretical implications where we understand what's going on, we can predict what's going on. And then the industry people love it too because we're giving those participants in our interviews a voice. We're able to say things in a neutral manner that they probably couldn't say to their retail partners. Um, or we could say it in a neutral way where Everybody knows it's coming from an unbiased place. If I'm a supplier, if I make a comment to my buyer, there's usually an agenda behind that, right? And vice versa. There's usually something behind that. We're unbiased. We're neutral. We, we are all about providing trustworthy information. We'll bring trust back in, Andy. Um, so I think you can do both. It is difficult. But we've shown, we, we have white papers out there now. You and I did a supply chain variant in more of a practitioner-oriented journal. And now we're working with one of the leading academic journals on describing, defining, and differentiating this. So to me, this is the holy grail. No, mm -hmm. but it's difficult. Yeah. Well, I'll come back to now the work itself. Um, as I said, we we sort of started with the problems and in and as we've gone through a couple of iterations, so and I should remind you know, those listening, 
you know, we did a round of interviews over a year ago. Uh, more recently, we've done a second round of interviews, really looking at what it changed. You know, but but I'm going to ask you all to help me blend those things together. You know, so Molly, I'm going to start with you. Uh, just we talked a little bit. We almost kind of got into the promise of retail media networks, but not quite. Um, so as as you've listened over the last, you know, let's call it 18 months mm-hmm. that we've been working on this, what, as you think about what is the promise and how is it So I loved working on this part. I think we actually each ended up getting to work on our favorite part, but this was it for me, to look at the possibilities that exist as companies are investing in this more and more, and it's becoming a stronger part of the ecosystem. So we really looked at it uh, from a triadic point of view. What's the promise for the consumers, for the brands, and for the retailers? So I'm going to hang it in that framework Mm -hmm. to uh, have some consistency with our first white paper. So I think there's an colloquial phrase that comes from Thailand. It says, same, same, but different. And that is just what kept resonating with me after every interview we had this second round. There were things that I would write down and say, well, that was the same. That was the same. But boy, that's changed. That's different over the last year. So I'll give you an example. Coming out of consumers, a consumer remained at the forefront. The The promise for the consumer was that they would receive this personalized, relevant, timely message that helped them as they were in their journey. That remained the same, but what was completely different was the specificity of the promise with round two. And, you know, it, we did not do quantitative research, so we haven't really explored what caused that specificity to emerge. I would guess it's that companies are investing so much money that that means in turn they're expecting more out of the promise. But whatever the cause, that specificity did emerge there so that it no longer became about Rodney getting a personalized relevant message. But the promise that was articulated to us in 2023 was they expected Rod to get an email prompting him based on what is relevant to him first thing in the morning. And that email and that messaging, whether it's social media or other platforms, would constantly adjust throughout the day, iterate based on data that's closed loop and going back to adjust what he's receiving and that it's not only taking place, this was a big difference, not only taking place in the digital space, but tying into the fiscal store. A great quote from an individual, he said, I want RMNs to influence fiscal merchandising as well so that my shopper is reached no matter where they are, what they're doing in store, online, in between, and actually referred to it as a tightly integrated, curated set, a seamless fabric of Rod's life. That was a, a different narrative than what we heard last year, which was personalized, relevant, timely. So the same, yeah. but different. Much more nuanced. Much more nuanced. Much more informed, much more sophisticated. Um, the suppliers went from a year and a half ago of the fear of the unknown to okay, we're getting our arms around this now. We're going to drive this. This is what we want. This is what we need. This is what we expect. Um, if you're going to be a media network, we're going to treat you like a media network. And we expect 
things that we would get from traditional media, right? An ROI, an understanding of what our investment represents, what services are you going to provide? One of the most unique things that came out of our research is the buyer-supplier relationship inverts here. Typically, the retailer is buying something from a supplier. With retail media, it's just the opposite. The suppliers are buying media services from the retailer, and those relational dynamics flipping like that, the power-dependence relationship fundamentally changes, and that presents some challenges, right? You go from one meeting where you're kind of in the driver's seat and saying, I want this, to go down the hallway, somebody said, and now it's my turn. You know, Andy, I felt like you have your head really around how we've seen this, you know, you said same, same, but different, right? Um, I'm going to kind of go to different because because there are some points where I think we all said we heard, you know, a year ago, 18 months ago, people were really just kind of getting their head around this. What is this phenomenon? You know, uh, how are we going to approach this? We, we feel like in some areas the gaps have closed over the last year or so. Uh, in some areas they haven't. What are some places where you really see some substantial change? Yeah, Brad, I think there's three things that uh, are different from last year that are a bit of closing the gap that we heard. The first is around conversations. The second is around clarity. And the third is around confidence. And if you look at the point of conversation, we heard quite a bit of we're having different conversations today than we had a year ago between the suppliers and the retailers. And I think that's important. Conversations around the importance of incrementality or measurement and those conversations are more transparent, which those conversations that wasn't necessarily happening back uh, a year ago. We, we weren't hearing about those conversations. On clarity, we're, we saw a lot more strategic clarity emerge over the last year. And what I mean by that is the clarity around uh, everyone that we talked to had some form of an assessment process to be able to assess capabilities. They all had a segmentation that allowed them to understand how they're going to interact with the different retail media networks. And that clarity was really important. And they also had a better understanding of which brand objectives are going to work better with retail media networks and then other brand objectives. And that, that's a lot of strategic clarity. Uh, and there was probably a little bit more clarity around their macro game plan. I think a year ago was, we don't know what we don't know. Now it felt like there was a lot more clarity about what their roadmap needs to look like in terms of the challenges to overcome or whatever the next conversation really needs to be. On clarity, there was also an operational clarity, uh, more understanding around uh, what tactics work better than other tactics, uh, what work processes need to get reinvented. And a lot of the companies have been really working on that. And then the last one on confidence, I think we saw a lot of confidence in the language and in the, in the approach that we didn't see before. Uh, and, and the confidence coming usually from upskilling. Uh, every organization has done a, quite a bit of upskilling over the last year. And that has resulted in a confidence in terms of how they approach the, the retailer supply relationship or how they approach the changes they need in the organization. So confidence was really markedly different, uh, but it wasn't systemic. It had a lot to do with who, was, who took what individual role and took it upon themselves to provide that leadership and a, a big company might have very different outcomes if the, if the key a actors working together weren't really on the same page and didn't, didn't really align, then, then the outcomes when the individuals themselves just leaned in and you, can, you could feel the leadership coming from them 
their outcomes could be completely different. So it wasn't systemic. It was very individual. Is that, is that what you guys thought? And I would add in, it was, it was very difficult to separate our areas because the promise was the same, but had changed. And then trying to identify whether that change was truly in the promise or in the reality of it, which is what Andy just discussed. But I think they really went hand in hand that as these changes were made in the reality, as people became more aware, especially of bifurcation between early entrance and later entrance, I think the narrative of the promise changed as well. And we are hearing almost two tracks laid down, the track that we heard last year, very general, conceptual in nature, and then the track this year, which was, especially for the early entrance into it, much more specific, much more strategic. So the promise became almost an elevated set of expectations that they needed to happen in order to be satisfied. And um, like, there's one of the quotes, and I'm sorry, I know I, I love leaning into the words of others, but one person said, the only value proposition that retail media networks have is measurement. So within a week, I should be able to run a number of tests and be so far ahead of where I would have been a month or a few months ago. And that is the implied promise. And they're saying that where last year they would say the promise is measurement and closely purporting. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, this is what this level of specificity really is what makes this phenomenon really, really exciting. Uh, you know, Rod, something that I don't, we should have talked about a little bit earlier is a sample. You know, how do you put a sample together? Because, you know, we, we talked to a pretty wide variety of people intentionally that had lots of experience. And so, you know, there's, many different brands represented and different retailers, different regions of the world. Uh, and, and so this was pretty a pretty broad look that we'll take, right? Yep. Yeah. Um, it's not the same as quantitative sample, where your sample size is thousands or millions of people. But even with qualitative research, you want to get a broad representation. Um, we want different levels of an organization. We want different members of the retail ecosystem. And it's important to have that because we didn't want this to be just about one retailer or just about one CPG company. We want it to be generalizable enough that it'll, it'll impact or those insights could potentially impact everybody. Right. And qualitative research is not going to be as generalizable as, you know, when you're crunching big data sets with econometric models. But I think our sample, because we did have different regions of the world and different players, really did give some insight that could help a wide range of people. Um, so qualitative sampling, you start out with people, the first criteria is it has to be somebody willing and able to talk about what you're interested in talking about. So we couldn't have people that weren't playing in this area. So they had to be experts or at least have work experiences in there. And from the air, you kind of try to provisionally test what some of the themes are. So we might start out with a handful of people from contacts that Andy knew. Well, to be honest, that's what it was. It was contacts Andy knew. From there, though, we started to see things. We said, oh, I wonder if this is just a U.S.-based thing. What's with all these people in Europe or Asia? Huh, I wonder if this is just a supplier thing. Let's go talk to some providers or some retailers. 
and we were truly trying to push the boundaries of what we were seeing. So with qualitative research, some of the sampling you do is a provisional test of what you're starting to find in the themes from the data. Well, and kind of goes now, I guess, back to the final stage of the paper itself, the way forward. Uh, like, what are some key thoughts? Not only did we describe, which we did a lot, we did a big focus on describing, but there's also some insights about the weight forward. Like Lolly was saying, because they are being more specific and describing what they need and what we could be more specific in prescribing the way forward. So measurement was a big area, right? And from all these points in the past, we just said, we need better measures. Now it's very clear, no, 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 we need log level data. We need to know what time uh, Mary Sue logged on, how long they looked at the ad, what ad they saw, did they purchase online that evening, or did they come back into the store the next day? It's a much more micro-targeted measure. Uh, under measurement, a big part of that too was make it verifiable, right? It goes back to the trust in you, right? Don't just tell us with summary reporting, reach out media is great. No, 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 no. Let's, let's see what's going in behind this reporting. Give us the raw data was what we were hearing from a lot of the bigger suppliers. Uh, alignment continues to be a big issue, both, both sides of the relationship. So for a retailer, it was, Hey, if we're going to, if we're going to invest in retail media, let's make sure our merchants, our store ops and our retail media is all on board so we can get synergies of if I'm going to run something on retail media, maybe we reinforce that in the store or reinforce that with something the merchants are doing for the suppliers. You know, there's this big distinction between upper funnel and lower funnel levels. Retail media is agnostic to that. They don't care whether you're driving sales of existing customers or acquiring new customers. Retail media helps. So those people need to blend those roles and be a little more aligned. Um, the integration piece came up in terms of information and systems. Um, retail media data, one of our big recommendations should be available to everybody, right? Um, internally and externally. There are a lot of key stakeholders that can um, benefit from having access to that information. So one of our recommendations is give them access to it. Even internally, it shouldn't be just a retail media manager type of information piece. Emergents need it, store ops need it, supply chain folks need it. So let's make that more widely accessible. And the last piece Andy touched on is the human capital. There's a different skill set here. It is a new industry. It is, um, it does combine cross-functional areas. So there's a need for training on just kind of what retail media is and what the capabilities can be, as well as very specific pieces of our very specific types of capabilities. Now there's probably a need for more data scientists in the marketing then. There's probably a need for people that understand the whole spectrum of the funnel of marketing. So there's clearly a human capital investment in certain types of skill sets and cross-training that's there. So those are really our four key points moving forward of recommendations to make retail media networks better. Well, this human capital discussion um, gives me an opportunity to pivot us back to the college and in and, and the classroom. Um, you know, so we, we talked about our vision of being a thought leader. And then we also said, you know, a huge part of our vision as a college is transforming lives. Um, and so Molly uh, and Andy actually here, 
because um, you're, you're actually a partner. Here's another beautiful part of this work. This makes its way back into the classroom. How does it do that? It absolutely does. And in a variety of ways, uh, first and foremost, for me to have somebody like Andy, who's willing to invest his time, come into my classroom. Um, other people who are involved in my class who um, will be willing to speak on this subject. So the students are hearing about it before they're, I mean, there's definitely not a textbook written, can't even hardly find academic articles written on it yet. And so we have to hear from individuals who are boots on the ground doing this. I think also uh, this has given us um, ways to learn about what is being discussed at conferences. I don't think you can go to a conference right now in our field where they're not talking about measurement, talking about retail media networks. Um, Andy's great about bringing so much of that information uh, back to us and hosting on LinkedIn, but we also have um, collaborations with the IAB. And I'd like to think that a lot of that push of the IAB comes out of our recommendations from last year where we said these individuals are clamoring for measurement. So when all of those relationships become almost institutionalized, people that we can now call and talk to, we can bring that back into the classroom and and give our students a leg up on something that is not being discussed at other institutions uh, where we have marketing majors. But we're talking about it. I know I'm talking about it in my class. Maybe even more than they want me to. But I talk about it all the time and they're going to come out very literate in this area and very well aware of another employment career path. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, what we're seeing with retail media networks uh, is that it, it's a leg of a stool to a bigger stool called connected commerce, really. And so if you look at what's happening with social commerce, advertising, marketing, uh, there's going to be a time where we get to there's no dead ends, where everything you see could actually turn into a transaction or a purchase opportunity. And I think that plays out for students in uh, one of the things Molly does in the marketing class, which I think is, is brilliant for the students, is take, take them on store walks and prepare them for store walks and go on store walks to see the customer journey uh, with a retailer, uh, a buyer, with a, a supplier. And very few uh, students get that opportunity, but now they can go through that opportunity with a connected commerce vision ahead of time. And they can ask different questions because they, they understand the importance of what's happening digitally first, understand how that space might be searched before it's actually shopped in store. Uh, and how do you look at that through the eye, a fresh set of eyes of connected commerce uh, for students? And I think they're getting very practical uh, and very unique experiences that come from some of our learnings from this particular research. Yeah, and these students uh, that are that are taking these classes, you know, you mentioned they have a leg up. I believe that fully to be true um, because they understand the context. They, they have a leg up in knowing the context that they're about to step into and contribute to. Uh, and so, you know, I hear it time and time again where, where our students, you know, are ready, you know, whether it's an agency, a consumer products company, a retailer, uh, you know, a company focused on supply chain management, like they have the context and they're ready to contribute really quickly. And I think Rod's a great example of this because he has been saying since day one, let's look at the supply chain implications of this. You know, so what if we give 
somebody a personalized relevant message and get them to the shelf to reach for a product that oh isn't there you know and so he's discussed this and i know he's taking that back to the classroom too and his supply chain students are hearing about how they fit into this ecosystem i guarantee that conversation is not taking place on other campuses but he's been living and breathing this project and um and taking it back to his very fortunate students I have, right? And I teach a supply chain strategy course, and we talk about capabilities that we need to meet in consumer needs. That's why supply chains exist, to meet those needs. Um, so my master's students have heard about it, my undergrads have heard about it, and they get excited. And it's reinforced across the curriculum when they're in marketing as well. I think that ties back to what you were talking about earlier, the, the value of research. Our research should inform and drive our teaching, right? And if if we're, if we're doing good research that's relevant to industry, by all means, let's bring it into the classroom. And if we're out in front of the industry on this, it really does set up our students. Industry-focused research that involves multiple disciplines, academics, and leaders from practice um, that's impacting thought in industry, will impact the academic literature, and is impacting current students. Um, win, 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 win. Uh, More than a trifecta. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, Rod, Andy, Molly, thank you for what you've been doing for the college, for pushing this research forward, this knowledge forward. Um, I, I really enjoyed working with all three of you on this project. Did thank you, Brett. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. On behalf of the Walton College, thank you for joining us for this captivating conversation. To stay connected and never miss an episode, simply search for Be Epic on your preferred podcast service.